COVID-19 has uh, sharpened divisions elsewhere and generated discussion about the why and the how certain communities are more vulnerable than others. So are you concerned about uh, fault lines emerging in Singapore because of the pandemic? Yes, and I won't say fault lines emerging. Uh, if you look at what I've been saying for years, I've always said there are fault lines. And what we are trying to do is to try and make sure they don't go deeper. In fact, we try and close as much of the fault lines as possible, but be realistic about what is doable. Go back to a larger point. Uh, every society has stresses. Some have more, some have less. In times of great economic strain or the situation like COVID across the world, it causes uh, emotional strain, mental strain, social strain, and of course, tremendous economic strain. These kinds of stresses damage society, have the power and the ability to break apart society or take society in a very different way. For example, after World War I, partly because of the huge amount of reparations that were demanded of Germany and the devastation of Germany, you had fascism take hold went on a very dangerous path. And you see now, uh, every time there are these kinds of stresses, uh, crazy politicians will come to the fore and they will appeal in a very populist way and they will try and seduce the population that the solution is very simple and they have the solution. And it's always got to do with, you know, uh, identify a different grouping, whether it's foreigners or whether it's a different race within the community or a specific religion uh, or people of religious persuasion, identify a group and say they are the cause of all our problems. And if we dealt with that, all our problems will be solved. You will get people like that. Uh, and that's happening around the world. Uh, it also brings out the latent tensions, uh, sometimes not low, so latent tensions. So if you see in the US, you have got protest, uh, you know, a police officer, uh, an African-American is killed in the process of uh, arrest. The video is very emotive. When, when you look at it, people will get angry. So it, you get these protests within our own context, we have tried to do things very differently from the US. But I will say, for example, if you take the month of April, we have had far more interracial incidents than we have had for some years. So the stresses are still there. But when we say far more, it's a very, very different quantum compared with other countries. We have gun control. You don't, you can't have a gun to go around shooting people. We handle race relations in a very different way. We integrate our societies. We don't allow ghettos to develop. We provide opportunities across all races. It doesn't mean there is no racism. I repeatedly said there is racism in every society. It's just a question of how much racism. But ours is not institutionalized. And we try and deal with it as best as we can. Also, uh, hate speech fuels racism, fuels uh, the deepening of fissures, attacking each other 
under the guise of free speech. We don't allow that. We, when you attack another race, another religion, we put a stop to it. Our criminal legal framework says, no. Uh, for example, in religion, you can go and proselytize, but you cannot run down somebody else, says, uh, somebody else's religion. So with these uh, sort of checks on the kind of hate speech, strict gun control, uh, control on uh, uh, what you can uh, do to people of other races, a framework that tries to promote interracial harmony, uh, a lot of effort taken to try and integrate in workplaces and in uh, homes, uh, HDB estates. I think we are in a very different place. So the tensions are there, but ours burst out in the form of uh, online postings, some heated words said by person of one race to another in a market. The police move in and say, look, cool off. Uh, we try not to charge, we give advice. Where it is egregious, we will charge. Online postings, which are egregious, people will get charged. And uh, everybody understands the message. So it's slightly different. But what is happening elsewhere is a warning to us as to what can happen here if we are not careful. It's same thing with protests. Some people ask me, oh, you know, you don't allow protests, which is strictly speaking not true. I mean, we do allow them, but in a specified place. If you want to do it elsewhere, you need to apply for permits. And the philosophy is very simple. When you want to protest elsewhere, say Orchard Road, essentially you want to cause uh, some degree of disseminity to other people. Why should you be allowed to? You know, shopkeepers, pedestrians, others, you know, roads get blocked. That's what happens in other countries. Your right to protest should be weighed against other people's right to carry on with their lives as they wish. And second, we're always worried about the violent consequences of such protests. Many start as peaceful protests. For example, in Hong Kong, their position is that they allow peaceful protests. But then you get a group of saboteurs, usually a small number, who will mix in deliberately to try and use the peaceful protest as a cover to become violent. And that puts the police in a dilemma because there are a large number of peaceful protesters, but there are a group who are violent and they are hiding there. And then what do you do? And then, you know, it's always uh, police are attacking and police are doing this, but they have been provoked. So you, you get that problem too. In our case, we say, you, and then there, there is this question, why don't you allow one person or two persons? Okay, you allow one, then why don't you allow two? If you allow two, why don't you allow three? If you allow three, why don't you allow four? So what's the magic number? Say 10. Then what about groups of 10? 10 here, 10 there, 10 there, and then they come together. So the best is to have a clean approach. You want to protest, go to Honglin. And our population is supportive of that approach. Mister, you've talked about some of the major events that have been the major winds buffeting the world, Hong Kong protests, renewed vigour to the Black Lives Matter movement. As a small and open society, Singapore is not immune to these forces. Uh, Singaporeans can watch a lot of what's happening abroad from their own homes. So, how do you, uh, how, how is the government managing such political views and beliefs from abroad that may influence views here? Of course, in without the proper context of uh, being here. Yeah. Well, on the whole, I think most Singaporeans take away uh, a salutary uh, sort of uh, understanding from what is happening elsewhere. Uh, you must look at it as 
what happened previously and what is happening now. Previously, America was the gold standard for democracy. Whatever is allowed in America is how everyone else ought to organize their societies by. Or what is happening in UK is how we all should organize our societies by. Right? People used to say that. Americans used to lecture us. American media used to tell us that. Media should be like their media. The civil rights and liberties should be like the way they organize it. And we used to say, we prosper by ignoring you. Because we are a different society. We give full rights, but we also emphasize responsibilities. Our society wants and uh, places a premium on uh, civility. It places a premium on safety, security, and individual rights versus the rights of society. There's got to be a balance. In Singapore, you go about your own lives, pretty much. Nobody stops you on the streets. There is no heavy police presence. There is no oppression. You know, people are free. But we draw a line when it comes to race or religion or, you know, violent protests. And uh, protests as well, as I said earlier, we circumscribe and say where you can protest. I think now people look at it, look at what's happening in America and say, well, thankfully, our system is different. Most people. Uh, you had some people who wanted to bring Hong Kong-style protests into Singapore, wanted to teach our students how to do those protests. And you saw what a majority of people in Singapore uh, thought about that. You know, when you say, I want 500,000 Singaporeans to go on the streets to protest, I don't think many Singaporeans will agree with that. Um, Minister, speaking of that, uh, having everyone at home during the circuit breaker period has, of course, dampened crime somewhat. We've seen uh, illicit activity go down on some fronts, but we've also seen some actors turn to new uh, novel methods. For instance, we've seen a rise in fraud, phishing, online scams, some related to masks. So can you give us an update on the law and order situation now that Singapore has exited the circuit breaker? During the circuit breaker, Obviously, some crimes went down. I mean, housebreaking, because everybody is at home, so not so easy to do. Molest on public transport, because people were not taking public transport. Uh, these sorts of crimes went down substantially. Uh, at the same time, the online scams went up, and we have to try and teach people to be much more uh, savvy about it, because there is a limited amount the police can do particularly if the scammers are overseas and it's done online. Uh, sex for money scams, you know, people fall for this all the time. Uh, also, quite disturbingly, the level of family violence has gone up, I think, 27 to 30 percent. Uh, and that uh, was worrying. So, uh, MHA, police, we work together. SPS, uh, Sanchui Ling, uh, spearheaded a team. And uh, we put in place some more proactive measures. The law is tough. The law remains the same, but some additional measures, like, for example, if there is a report by someone who claims to be a victim, then there would be immediate follow-up on the social side to see whether the social services people need to go and give support, uh, try and protect the, you know, the alleged victim or whoever has filed the report. A few number of... Uh, steps were taken to try and put up a protection 
around victims and uh, try and see how we can move things. Uh, so, you know, you react according to the situation. Now, most people are out, as in going back to work, though work from home remains a default position. And uh, we have to step up uh, the uh, vigilance on the kind of crimes that take place when people come out. Mr. Can you talk about, uh, for instance, MHA and ELD have both uh, released advisories recently about both uh, foreign interference in light of the coming election and cyber threats. What are some recent uh, instances or examples that come to your mind and how concerned should we be? Are you mainly concerned about the classical kind of uh, interference in terms of uh, uh, foreign funding or say cultivating of uh, politicians here or are you more concerned about what's been called uh, sentiment amplification where fake or compromised accounts are used to advance certain agendas? I think all of it is getting fused to be honest. And um, the internet has made foreign interference from a variety of sources, governments as well as private sector, much easier. Uh, and foreign countries using their agencies can come in very many deceptive ways and intervene. You've seen this happen across the world. The US says it has been the target, UK says it has been the target, France, Germany, Australia, many countries. Uh, Russia says it has been the target too, Ukraine of course. So you've got many uh, countries which claim to be, uh, claim to have been targeted. That's one side. So it's, it's been done, it's being done. Second, it's very easy and inexpensive to do. And the technology is easily available, not just to state actors, but to non-state actors as well. So you know it's been done, it's being done. Second, you know it's easy to do and it's easy to do by a lot of people. It'll be foolish of us not to take steps to deal with it. So I think cultivating our politicians is one thing. Interfering through our politicians or through the media or through local NGOs, that's a classic method. That I think is something that people always try and we keep a lookout. But these aren't the only vectors, there are many other vectors. And then with the internet, it is turbocharged to this kind of interference through fake news, through lies, through a variety of uh, disinformation campaigns, through hacking. Many things happen and you really got to be on top of the game. Mr. The examples you've uh, shared with us is more, is it very post hoc. After they have been, happened, parties say they have been the victim of this and that. How do we not end up at that point but be able to catch it before it uh, infects the system. If you remember France, uh, the Macron campaign, President Macron's campaign before he became president, was aware that uh, they could be targeted. So they actually laid a honey trap for the would-be hackers. And then when the hackers came, they went and they thought they found a treasure trove of documents, which were then released and uh, turned out to be all fake and obviously fake, so that, you know, the French public realized they are being, uh, there are these sorts of attempts. So it's not just post hoc, you know, the people, some people were prepared. We, I would say, you know, of course our resources are not as big as big, com big countries, but uh, we have some resources and we have been looking at uh, how these things might happen. I'm not going to say we're going to be able to catch everything, but uh, being aware of the risk is quite a lot of the problem solved. Having some technical capability and waiting and, you know, planning it 
is also important. We have also given advisories to all the political parties to be aware, to try and take uh, some safeguards on their own websites uh, so that they, you know, they try and prevent themselves from being hacked. Minister, you recently were on the OK Let's Go podcast to talk about POFMA, but the podcast itself has come under some flag recently because of uh, what's been seen as misogynistic remarks in their earlier episodes. So, when it comes to uh, encouraging positive messaging, what's the government's position? And of course, discouraging uh, casual misogyny. Is it left mainly to self-policing, societal feedback, or is there a certain red line that... Uh I would say this. Okay, let's go. The men behind the podcast have apologized and they've said they will introspect and they will uh, you know, look at uh, how they can deal with it. The second thing is MCI has some standards and if they are breached, they deal with it. Uh, the third point is, it's an unfortunate point, is that if you look at the internet, there is a lot of stuff that's absolutely unacceptable, very, very bad, uh, misogynous, attacking women, far more serious that has to be dealt with, and uh, but it's not possible for the government or MCI to go and deal with all of that. And uh, really, we need to find a way in which, uh, we, you know, without affecting free speech, this kind of stuff ought to be dealt with. And I'm talking about really, you know, cartoons and memes and uh, jokes and uh, a lot of other kinds of material which attacks women. That goes back to our earlier discussion on Singapore as a free and open society where you have access to a broad range of materials online that traditionally, maybe pre-internet, would not be allowed here. How does the government deal with that? Like you mentioned, a lot of these things are beyond our borders, and, but it's not uh, beyond what uh, Singaporeans can see nowadays on a regular basis. I think it's a challenge. We have to do the best we can, but you also know what the limitations are. It's not everything that can be controlled. From your constituency outreach, what do you see as the main issues that uh, voters are thinking over as they go to the polls? Has uh, COVID brought some things to the fore? Has certain things receded into the back? I mean, if you look at our interview today, we talked about misogyny, we talked about uh, race riots, we talked about uh, uh, the kind of stuff that's on the internet, variety of things. But during all of these are important topics. But I think what's uppermost for voters now, right now, are really two issues. The healthcare situation and the economy. Economy not as a sort of a, some sort of a conceptual entity, but impacting on them directly, their jobs, their jobs, their children's jobs. These are the two things, healthcare, and economy. These are serious issues. And it's a very, very uh, sober environment. People are very sober. They're thinking about these things. And uh, as uh, PM said, we are at one of those hinges of history. And I think it behoves uh, the politicians to really focus on this and deal with these issues during the elections. Because people want to know, 
what's going to happen with the COVID situation and what is your solution on the economy. What does it mean in six months? What does it mean in a year? What does it mean in five years? What are you going to do about it? You look at it, Germany was successful in dealing with it in the first phase. They've opened up. The numbers have gone beyond the, you know, R01. It's uh, beyond the, uh, it's at a high reproductive stage. South Korea now has said it's in the middle of a second wave. So this happens, the, this virus is a very clever enemy. And uh, we've had zero, one, two, three community cases for a few days. And overall, the numbers have come down. But when we open up, we fully expect that the number of community cases will go up. Our thinking is we'll need to manage it in a way where our healthcare capacity does not get overwhelmed and we are on top of the situation because we can't also keep uh, ourselves shut down. Jobs will go, the economy will go. And at the same time, we have put in four budgets, we have helped people. And people want to know, yes, that's so, but you know that alone doesn't allow the companies to survive. They do need to do business. And business environment continues to be tough. What, who can take them through this period? Who can make sure the companies survive? Who can make sure their jobs continue? These are critical questions for them. And I think this is where our focus has been ever since COVID started. All of us, you know, totally focused on this. And I think during the campaign, that is what voters will want to hear about. Minister, the government has um, put up clearly through a series of national broadcasts its plans for not just this season, but the, the, the months and years. Yes, we have to think forward. But how are you uh, certain that will be the, the narrative, uh, the discussion, in the, especially in the heat of the hustings? Our task is to tell people what we think honestly are the issues and uh, you know what are the solutions. At the same time, it behoves us to listen to what people think are the issues and deal with them too. It's not just what we say the issues are. What we say the issues are has got to be based on our analysis of the situation, but also if something is important for the people, those are also issues. But my own sense is what is important for the electorate right now is really, hey, how are we going to keep this COVID under control? And how are we going to make sure the economy pulls through? And for the government, it's a, another question. It's not just pulling through, but when the world pulls through, how are we placed to really soar ahead of uh, everyone else? How can Singapore pull through? PM said, look, never fear. We will pull through. We will do well. I think people believe that. Do you, from your, talking to your residents, uh, do you get a sense that they are reassured that we will come through this period even though we may not see the light at the end of the tunnel right now? I mean, it's taken successive budgets. I don't think the government uh, could have anticipated that going into February or March. I think there is a, I would say, both a quiet confidence and a determination amongst the people across all age groups. There is a certain quiet confidence, a trust that has been built up, not over one month or three months or one year, but over a period of 60 years. 
a confidence that has been built up through successive generations. Yes, you know, we have come through before, we will get through this. Government knows what it is doing and we will work together. So there is that quiet confidence. There is also a determination, a determination that we will get through. I think with the two combined and with the good leadership, which listens to and works with the people, we will get through.